We talk a lot on this podcast about chess improvement, but when it comes to improving your hiring processes, Indeed is the platform you need. Indeed has over 350 million global monthly visitors, and it has a matching engine that helps you find quality work candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with your candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Years ago, when I was running a chess teaching business, I found it hard to find good help, and I had to go through a lot of back and forth to even screen potential candidates. Indeed allows you to do those things efficiently in one place. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed for hiring, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of Perpetual Chess will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility if you go to Indeed.com slash chess. Just go to Indeed.com slash chess right now, and you'll be supporting our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast, Indeed.com slash chess. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, everyone. I'm Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. On Perpetual Chess, I have weekly conversations with the chess world's best players, promoters, and educators about their lives, careers, current projects, and best practices. Perpetual Chess is brought to you through the generosity of its Patreon and PayPal supporters. For more information, go to perpetualchesspod.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Perpetual Chess. We have another fascinating guest this week. He is a scholastic coach out there in the Bay Area of California. He is a U.S. Chess National Master, peak ratings of around 2,300, both USCF and FIDE. He also has a master's degree in mechanical engineering from Stanford. Um, Michael Agner, thank you for joining us here on Perpetual Chess. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for reminding me. Oh, my pleasure. Yeah. So we were chatting a little bit before we recorded. We're uh, don't tell Greg Shahadi, but we're recording here on a Tuesday during the pro chess league because we we record when we can, not when we want to. But I know that you um, you are, I would say, affiliated or you track both Bay Area pro chess league teams. Uh, so what have you been watching so far? I know you said you didn't get to check out this week's action uh, so far, but I know you were watching week one. How is how is stuff shaping up for the Pro Chess League for the Bay Area? 
I try to follow both teams. I know players on both teams. And, of course, I, uh, I like to see them do well. I am perhaps a little bit more biased to the San Francisco mechanics because they have people that I'm more closely involved with. I'm learning several of my former students. Anyways, I, last week in round one, San Francisco played San Jose. And unfortunately for my mechanics, they lost. Uh, San Jose built a big advantage in the first three rounds and then hung on for an eight and a half to seven and a half victory. So good start for San Jose. Not so good start for San Francisco, but there are still nine more weeks to go. Yeah, I guess I, with so many uh, close ties with so many players on both teams, you probably wouldn't have been too upset with the draw. But just to give listeners some perspective of uh, the caliber of player that, that you've coached. So you coached uh, Grandmaster Daniel Naroditsky. And uh, what other principles have you coached um, from uh, the Pro Chess League? Um, Grandmaster Naroditsky, fair. On the um, mechanics. That's uh, Steve, Steven Zierk. Go on. And also uh, international master Jan Lu, who has not played yet. Okay, so... He's also on that team. So, Michael, I'm a, I'm a scholastic coach as well. Um, probably slightly weaker or at least less in form in chess than you, but I have never coached a grandmaster or coached a future grandmaster. So, so what's your secret? Um, my philosophy of coaching is that it's really important to keep the student excited and interested in getting better. Um, I might be a master, but that doesn't mean that I know everything. Um, and many of my top students also learn from uh, other stronger players. So at least I don't have to worry about being their only teacher. My job is to cultivate a love for chess and also give them an appreciation of uh, grandmaster level games and finally help them teach themselves so that they can get better. So, In many ways, I would say that I am partly a friend, partly a coach. Okay, and so how do you uh, share your love and cultivate a love for chess amongst your students? Mostly by looking at elite or famous games or even current top games. I love to pick on the top American players and, of course, the top players around the world. Sometimes I'll pick on some of the top young players. For example, Pratinananta. Okay, and I'm putting you on the spot here, but you mentioned that you like to show sort of uh, famous games. Do you have any particular go-to games that come to mind that, that you like to show above all others? I have a couple of games from Tall against no-name opponents. I also enjoy, for example, um, some of the Brian sees by Kasparov, for example, his game against Topolov in, I believe, 1999. Yeah, legendary game. So, I also, I love some of the games between Magnus Carlsen and Aronian, where they, I don't 
know how they do it, but every single game they play is really interesting. Yeah, and do you find, so especially with the, the Kasparov-Topolov game and the Carlson-Aronian games, when, when players of that caliber play, do you find it difficult to explain their games to, to lower-rated players? I find it difficult if you want to talk about every single little detail. However, I do stay a little bit above the grandmaster level analysis. Um, I don't look at every little detail. On the other hand, we do sometimes get lost in calculation, looking at one variation for 15, 20 minutes, and there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, that's part of the learning process. Now, um, what's your philosophy on involving computers? Because, uh, I mean, I'm guessing if you've seen these games so many times, you've probably seen some engine analysis at some point. Um, but do you do you, do you generally uh, incorporate that in, in terms of trying to figure out what's going on in a position? I, I will have undoubtedly looked at the game with an engine in the background just to get a feel for what's going on. I prefer to do the lesson without consulting a computer, sometimes in a really tactical position. Inevitably, it is necessary uh, just to know exactly what's going on. However, I attempt to tackle the game, for the most part, on my own. That means, of course, both my student and I are likely to make an occasional mistake. Yeah, it makes sense. And of course, you and I both go back far enough where uh, when our love for chess was born, uh, computers weren't quite as big a part of um, of analyzing a game. So it's um, I think when when you have that background, it's less of a challenge to, to keep the, the engines off. Um, and uh, speaking of which, I thought that we might segue to you talking about how so how you got into chess. So you you improved rapidly, which is something I'd like to hear about, but how was your initial interest in chess sparked? I learned chess when I was seven from my father. And uh, I had a book by uh, Reinfeld and read that from cover to cover. However, my only real opponents were my father, my cousin, and maybe one or two other adults. When I was in when I was in high school, the school had a club, and that piqued my interest. However, I never heard of the U.S. Chess Federation, and therefore I never had a rating. Remember, back in those days, there was no internet. I could not Google chess, and therefore I knew nothing. We did go to the chess club. Back then, I lived in St. Petersburg, Florida. And we did actually go to the chess club one Saturday afternoon. And unfortunately, there were only two old people there. They were playing blitz and smoking and cursing. (laughs) Sounds about right. And with my father, it was not the cursing that was the problem. It was the smoking. And therefore... We didn't stay very long. I did not play any money. And I suspect, I mean, normally on a Saturday afternoon, you expect there to be people there. I suspect it being summer and being like early August, 
I remember there used to be a Continental Chess Association tournament in the city in the beginning of August. Unfortunately, nobody told us. Therefore, I never found out. Therefore, I went out to college here in California, and that was my first exposure to chess. Okay. Uh, So I am one of those rare animals who never played a scholastic game in his life and actually started chess at the age of 18. Okay, and and, uh, I... According to my intrepid research, it looked like your first rating was around uh, 1,026, possibly. If It's always hard to tell with the USCF graph, but in the neighborhood of 1,000? It was slightly above 1,000. Uh, that, that was just based on one tournament, which okay. I played one bad game. I believe my true strength at that time was probably around 13 to 1,400. Oh, wow. That's a pretty good facility for chess then, or do you think it was just that you'd already played uh, a fair amount? I had definitely played a fair amount, especially in high school. I And was, you'd read the Reinfeld book. So I had read the Reinfeld book. Therefore, I was not a true beginner. Uh, on the other hand, I still had a lot to learn. Uh, don't we all? <laughs> And still have a lot to learn. Yes, likewise. So, so once the fever sort of took hold and you were you uh, really started to dig in, what did you do to to climb your way from thirteen hundred to twenty three hundred strength? Mostly play. Here's a little story back from the days when I was about sixteen hundred. I was playing Sacramento Chess Club and also over here at the University of California, Davis. And so I had two chess clubs per week, which was nice because I needed the practice. Remember that this is already today. ICC existed, but wasn't very popular. So it was basically before internet chess. So you needed to go to a chess club to get practice. In my case, I had two choices. The I ended up playing a group of about six, seven adults. They were rated between 1,900 and 2,200. And I would play mostly blitz games against them. At the beginning, I was happy when I went home with one win out of eight or nine games in a night. That ended up becoming two, three, four, five wins. Today, I probably, I haven't played these people recently, but today I would probably get around six wins against the same group out of maybe eight games. In other words, I was benefiting from playing and unfortunately losing. Yeah, getting beat up is a tried and true way to improve at chess. I, exactly. I keep telling my students, I have lost more games than they have. Yeah, it's and it's um, it's always tricky because it seems like the the ones who like chess the most also hate losing the most. So it, there's always a learning curve involved. So it's so often good just to, as you say, sort of have a baptism by fire where. Uh, you get your face bashed as many times and as quickly as possible, and then you sort of know what you're in for from that point forward. 
you have to either sink or you have to swim. Yeah. And in this case, I learned from really good players. They were all much stronger than me at the beginning. I slowly tried to figure out, hey, what are they doing that I'm not? And it got, I got better slowly in there, and that was that. And what was your, so what was your feedback mechanism? Were you typically looking at the games with the players? Were you, did you have a coach? Were you uh, just kind of trying to piece it together for yourself or what? There was a little bit of analysis, like they would say you shouldn't have done this or you should not have done that, or you would have been winning if you had done this. Um, for the most part, trial and error. That's interesting. I did, I did not have any formal coach or anything back then. Okay, and what about in terms of uh, self-study? Um, Michael, one thing we always like to hear about is uh, book recommendations or resources that you found indispensable. You mentioned the Reinfeld book at the very beginning, but as you advance to um, uh, a higher level, were there any um, books or resources that you found particularly helpful? My holy bible was modern chess openings and i actually studied that book uh i know that younger players today would wonder what that is but it being a thick book of uh basically every opening variation you would ever want to learn that was definitely my main book i am not a bookworm by any means but I did enjoy Tall's Life and Games. And it's probably my number one recommendation to my students. Well, that's interesting to hear you say that you're not a bookworm. And MCO, for anyone scratching their head and listening, that is the same book that Greg Shahadi and I were, were uh, giggling at, or Greg in particular was giggling about a bit in our recent interview. Um, yeah, things have changed in terms of how you learn openings. But as we said then, and as Michael just uh, attested, it was uh, it was the, basically the only way to try to learn opening theory back in those days, or at least the most practical since... Um, it was hard to find and be able to afford a different opening book based on every single opening. So it was kind of like one-stop shopping for learning um, what to do in a given position or at least to give you a starting point. But um, so, but getting back to, to your recommendations, I'm, I mean, uh, Tal's Life in Games is one that has come up several times and obviously uh, Tal is a, a, a legend and a good writer to boot. So that's uh, some some a good recommendation but i'm interested that you you sort of make it sound like a lot of what you learned was not from books so what did you um so what do you think substituted for books in your case practice 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 and what's what time control are we talking i mean i know that you like to play blitz online um but like how frequently were you playing tournaments and how did you balance the two I, if you look in my rainy history, I played a prop. My peak is about 120 games a year, so not terribly high. I would say at that time it was between 90 and 100 for most years. Um, most of my practice that I talked about was blitz. And then once internet became somewhat more popular, internet blitz. Also sometimes internet 15 minutes. 
I also, um, in the early 2000s, joined the 4545 League on Internet Chess Club, which gave me 4545 being, of course, a relatively slow time patrol, gave me uh, practice in longer games. But at that point, I was already a 2,000-plus level player. Okay, and with with the Blitz and the Rapid games, um, would you necessarily analyze them afterwards? Or um... I, I typically, if a game bothered me enough, I would look at it. Uh, does that mean I looked at every game? No. I was probably a poor student in that regard. It's interesting. You, you know, you have sort of... Um what I would, if I may be so bold, call kind of a scattershot approach to, to learning, um, which I think was fairly common back in those days. But now now that you're a teacher, do you find yourself giving um, more of a structured approach to, to your students? Definitely. So what sort of structure would you, would you put in place? Certainly. I don't blitz games or blitz games, of course. But I ask my students to play 15-minute games. And to at least look at the opening of that game and for major tactical mistakes. And if they can do that, then the 15-minute games are perfect. They get to play multiple games uh, without killing all their time on one just one game. Yeah, that's a good advice, actually. And is there a rating level as a scholastic coach? I'm sure you... You know, you mentioned we mentioned some of the stronger players you taught, but do you you probably teach um, lower rated players as well? Is there a level below which you you would not advocate that approach, where you feel like they shouldn't even bother, or do you think it's a good approach for any student of any level? I have to admit that I have a strong preference for stronger students, and in that regard. I have very little experience under approximately a thousand. Okay. So I cannot speak to uh, that approach with much lower rated players. Okay. Um, I also, most of my students end up being strong blitz players. I guess you can figure out why. Uh, But in that regard, I am trying to get them to slow down rather than speed up. Yeah. It, and in that regard, I find 15 minutes to be kind of the balance between the, the fast and the slow. It, the, the important thing, in my opinion, that's my own experience, is the importance of practice. And I would rather see them lose more aims and try to you know, this did not work. I need to find out why. And that kind of attitude will make him a better player. At least that was my personal experience. Yeah, I, I, I think that's good advice. And, and having taught so many strong players over the years, one thing I always like when I, when I do get a chance to talk to people who, who taught future grandmasters um, is I, I like to hear, like, were the students who you taught who ended up having the most success in chess, uh, was there anything that distinguished them early on um, in your working with them? Enthusiasm. Uh, interesting. Uh, I will say, for example, 
Um, Daniel Naranucci would spend, you know, many, many hours studying chess. His notebooks, he would keep notebooks of tournament games, of chess lessons, of anything. And those notebooks were legendary. They also helped him write his books. Uh, Stephen Veert, I have a funny story about him. He, we went to the U.S. Open, I think it was in Dallas. That was probably 2008. He was playing in the Danker, and we both played in the main tournament, the U.S. Open. Well, we went there, and I brought three chess books with me that I had intended to read parts of, at least. And I told Stephen, you're welcome in my books. By the second day, he had read all three of them. Wow, <laughs> that's incredible. Um, and for, for listeners who don't know, the, the Denker tournament is a tournament of high school champions that is run concurrently with the U.S. Open. So it's a great opportunity for top young scholastic players to uh, fraternize and, and try to beat each other, basically. Um, so do you remember what any of those books were, Michael? No, I don't. That that's a that's a great story. So um, so obvious. So it's great to hear that, that that enthusiasm is the first thing that you think of for these players who became grandmasters. Now, did you notice anything special in their tactical ability? Um, and did you notice any sort of uh, predisposition for chess uh, that was not present in other students? Stubbornness. Okay, I like that you're talking. I'll say again, you know, Stephen, I'm not picking on you. But he would try to win even the most losing endgame. He was, instead of playing for a draw, he'd still be playing for a win. Obviously, that led to some painful losses over the years. And I think these days he's a lot more objective in his analysis. But if that stubbornness and not willing to give up if I want to pick on Mr. Naranitsky, he would love to trash one of my favorite openings, the Dutch defense. And he would make it his personal mission to trash it. If I ended up finding one line that was barely holding, he would improve on that line. That's so fine. if that repeated repetitiveness and that stubbornness they don't want to give up on a problem and i think that's in addition to of course their enthusiasm in addition to whatever talent they have it's that stubbornness that differentiate differentiate between a gm and an im that's a great story and i think it's inspiring for listeners uh, i would imagine um because the fact that you're not emphasizing talent, um, you're emphasizing uh, soft skills, as it were, although they're pretty indispensable for, for chess success, I think is encouraging. Um, but did you notice a, like, uh, did you notice from working with these kids at a young age that they were more adept at noticing tactical patterns than other students? Sure. Um, I, they were both talented players. Um, at least Daniel was 10, 11. He was playing at expert level and higher. Wow. Obviously, they're good at tactics. But that is not the first thing that came to my mind. Or yeah. My mind. 
Yeah, and I don't mean to put words in your mouth. I'm just curious because, uh, as I said, I, I've never taught someone who attained that level. I mean, obviously, I've spent time with, with players of that level, but I'm just curious uh, what to look for uh, as a teacher. And one, one side note for listeners, you mentioned um, you mentioned your, your affinity for the, the Dutch opening, um, and I read on, on your website that that's – that's part of the reason for your F pawn moniker. He often, uh, Michael often goes by F pawn, at least back in the day on uh, ICC and I think on uh, social media and stuff like that. So, um, did you notice, Michael, that the Alpha Zero had trotted out the Dutch in some of its games? I had. Uh, my students have seen that particular game. Or at least the, there was one particular Dutch game where Alpha Zero sacrifices a piece. And it's not even clear where the compensation is. <laughs> and approximately six, seven moves later, uh, Stockfish is dead. That's amazing. Yeah, it's there's so much to learn from that that computer. But yeah, I find uh, what openings it chooses to be one of the many um, one of the many topics of interest about um, this this developing story. I'm excited to announce that this week's episode of Perpetual Chess is brought to you in part by Chessable. If you're a regular listener to Perpetual Chess, you've probably heard me and our esteemed guests extol the virtues of Chessable even when they were not our sponsors. Chessable uses learning science to help you improve your chess as efficiently as possible. It's a great way to remember more ideas faster, even for a middle-aged dad like me. What's more, they're an open platform where anyone can publish their courses. I'm talking to you, chess teachers and coaches. And they paid out hundreds of thousands of dollars in commissions to their partner authors. They have big plans for 2019. So if you're a student, author, or coach, be sure to check out chessable.com. So once you had taken hold, uh, an interest in chess had taken hold, and you mentioned you made your way from from Florida to California, where you started to compete more regularly. And I know that you were in school um, for both undergrad and then uh, getting a master's in mechanical engineering. So were you able to continue to compete and improve in chess while all of this was going on? Uh, yes, I, I'm one of the exceptions where of people that actually, A, played in college and B, improved in college. These days... The struggle for the U.S. Chess Federation is uh, taking high school players and keeping them on the membership at, during the college years and beyond. I'm definitely the exception to that rule. So speaking of the, the challenge, do you have any ideas of uh, what, what U.S. Chess might be able to do um, to retain, help people retain their interest? I have always been in favor of a U.S. chess internet site. Unfortunately, I think that Wagon has left the station. The, these people, that these high school kids that so-called quit chess, they don't really quit. They still play on chess.com. They play on ICC. They still play, but they don't play tournaments and therefore U.S. chess has lost track of them. Some of them will return later in life, but unfortunately a lot of them, once they have left um, the tournament scene, they don't return. 
And I really feel like it is important for um, U.S. chess to have a bigger footprint online. And like I said, that might have been something they could have done in the early 2000s. And in fact, they tried. Unfortunately, their attempts basically failed. And now there are several major internet chess sites out there and it's almost impossible to compete anymore. Yeah, although generally these internet sites and of course I'm, you know, I I'm friendly with a lot of the people affiliated with them and they've been guests on this show, so uh caveat emptor, but but I mean, I'm also <laughs> a big fan of US chess. But anyway, uh, digression over, I just would say that generally these sites are, are a huge boon for chess. I mean, whether we're talking about chess.com or chess24 or even someone like a godmater, however you say his name, uh, doing the uh, the YouTube videos, um, they, they, they bring more people into chess than take them away. I just think that U.S. chess might have a slight challenge in terms of uh, converting that interest into U.S. chess memberships. And into tournament players. Yes, that's true. Although, and this is something where you and I may differ because um, you have remained active throughout the years, and I, in theory, would would like to be more active, but but don't don't manage to pull it off as often. So, um, how do you manage to um, to to continue to compete? You have to understand, as a physically disabled person in a wheelchair. I don't play real sports. I don't play, as much as I would love to, I don't play baseball, I don't play soccer, tennis, football. No, I chess for me is my, quote, sport. Uh, a mental sport, of course. But it is my outlet in order to be competitive. Now, I have to say it is difficult having to fight against the younger generation who sees tactics faster than I do. But I still keep fighting. I still have success against them. Some success. So have you developed the uh, fabled old man game? Do you try to play more positionally now? I certainly do. Um, I am cert- I'm not a professional master by any means. I play more like Magnus Carlsen, perhaps. Boring chess. I love endgames. I always have loved endgames. And in that sense, I... Almost a typical game of mine is one where I get a slightly worse position and have to somehow outplay the endgame. It's a good skill to have. Yeah, a, a stronger player than I am, and... I mean, people, other guests on the show, I think David Smeridan, uh, Grandmaster from uh, Australia, is one that mentioned this, um, have told me uh, that especially as you, you know, as you get older, you, you get a lot of sort of return on your investment trying to become a specialist in the end game. Because if you study a certain opening, it might come up, it might not. Um, and tactics, obviously, it's helpful to work on your tactics, but... Um, you can reach a point of diminishing returns um, in terms of uh, the rate at which you can improve your calculation. 
but end games are subtle enough and understandable enough where if you kind of are willing to put in the work you can you can save a lot of half points here and there in the course of competing and uh it can make a big difference over over time international master cyrus lot davala yes well-known author yeah he somewhere he wrote and i love this quote i am paraphrasing at the moment that an older player always wants to trade against kids because after every trade their rating goes down a little bit and your rating goes up yeah i don't know if the latter half of that (laughs) that sentence is true for me but at least the first half is and i'll take it um, so you mentioned, Michael, uh, your your physical disability. I hope um, is is it okay to refer to it that way? Yeah, that's fine. Okay, and uh, and on your blog, you you mentioned the actual medical condition, which is uh, quadrilateral focamelia. Did I say that right? Yes, you did. Okay, do you mind just telling our listeners a little bit more about your uh, your the medical issues you've had to overcome or or uh, play through? I- I was born with uh, short limbs, uh, so two short arms, two short legs, and I drive around in an electric wheelchair. From a chest point of view, um, it's not terribly difficult to play chess. The main difficulty for me is reach, reaching across the board to the bat rank. Uh, these days, I use a stick to help me move the pieces around, a pointer, basically, um, which allows me to push a piece down the board. Sometimes my opponents will help me, but I've never really had a problem in that regard. I love to play blitz. Unfortunately, I am also a slow blitz player. I obviously lose games on time or because of time. I would never play one-minute bullet, although I do online. So in that regard, my disability does limit me a little bit, but in terms of slow tournament chess, no, it has very little impact. Unfortunately, I have also developed a neurological condition over the last decade and that is affecting my ability to travel I used to go to tournaments around the country particularly the US Open and the Pan Am Interrelationship these days I only travel in Northern California for the most part perhaps to Nevada so it definitely uh, over the last decade I have been less active I've only played 40, 50 games a year. And that is because of my additional neurological issues. Okay. And you're st- are you still staying active online? I mean, I know you coach online, um, but are you managing to play online even as you're, you've had to dial it back a little bit in terms of uh, traveling to play? I, I'm still very much online, yes. Okay. And, uh, Michael, we got a couple questions from supporters of the podcast. Um one of which uh, this person um, didn't wasn't particularly eager to have me share his name, but um, but he did ask. Um, 
He said he'd be interested in finding out how you deal with wheelchair accessibility issues at tournaments. He um, also uses a wheelchair, so this is why he's asking. Um, chess clubs, etc. He says, I assume he has stories about this sort of thing, or maybe it's not an issue where he lives and plays. I ask because I've used a wheelchair pretty much my whole life, and I've run into problems with this. So I'm curious how you've dealt with it. Oh, and one more one more part, sorry. Is it more of a problem in certain parts of the country and if you've played in other parts of the world, if you could address that as well? I have actually never played in another country except unless you want to count Toronto. Well, that counts. It counts, but uh, I would say Canada is essentially the same as the United States. Yeah. I have never actually played in Europe, although I have visited a few tournaments. Uh, to answer the main question, here in Northern California, I am blessed, I guess, that most tournament sites are wheelchair accessible, including the Historic Mechanics Institute. Uh, even they have accessible restroom. Apparently, they uh, modified their restrooms shortly before I started becoming active. The... Uh, only issue I am aware of one tournament site in the area which was inaccessible. I obviously never played there. Uh, and that site is no longer being used anymore. So I, I would say that I am fortunate that I don't really have to deal with accessibility issues, at least in my California tournaments. I remember playing one tournament in an old uh, Chicago chess club. Actually, that was the tournament where I broke master and beat my first IM. So it is a tournament that I will remember for the rest of my life. And that was in a old building that had stairs and we had to play in the basement and no elevator. However, at the time, I was using a pushing wheelchair and my father was able to take me down the stairs. Wow. I stayed down there the whole time. I didn't come up for some fresh air or anything. But still, I was able to play that tournament. That was probably the only time that I actually played a tournament at an inaccessible site. Uh, so I honestly have to say to your listener, I've been fortunate. Well, well, that's good to hear. Um, and for for anyone who's listening who runs tournaments, um, so I guess uh, it should be fairly intuitive what they look for in a facility, right? I mean, they they just it needs to be handicap accessible. Are there any other um, elevator and restroom? Okay, on the main, uh, at least for wheelchair users. I would like to add that most of the tournament directors in the United States are quite open and willing to help you, for example, if you have to play at a different board, which, you know, there's a small story I can tell you related to that at the United States Open. I have been fortunate enough to play on some of the top boards, um, and there. I remember playing in the Los Angeles U.S. Open in 2002 or 2003, I forgot. And that tournament, they had a stage. 
an elevated stage, which I could not get on. So that was kind of funny. I believe that there was unofficially a rule that if there's a stage, it has to have a ramp after that tournament. Hmm. Uh, so when I played in the Chicago U.S. Open, the Oprah U.S. Open in 2006, there was no stage. It was just a roped-off area at the same level. And at that tournament, I played uh, on board two in the last round. Huh. So certainly uh, it would have been a little bit awkward to play on board two somewhere else. Right. Fortunately, there it was a level, a level area there. It was just roped off. So yes, I would say most tournament directors in the country are quite accommodating, as long as the the building itself is not the problem. Okay, and if you're thinking about playing in a tournament and you have not played in the venue before, um, how would you figure out if um, if you ask, if, I always would ask my friends first uh-huh and I would try to contact the tournament director okay obviously if I don't have if I'm going somewhere where I've never played before I don't know any friends there which in my case is probably unlikely uh, I would have to call the tournament director or email him and try to find out certainly if you have special need for example, a blind player, or some other disability, it is a great idea to contact the tournament director in advance. Most of those that I know, as long as they know what the problem is and you don't tell them five minutes before round one, they are very accommodating. They're very willing to help you whatever works best for you. In my age, I've been fortunate that I really ne- never needed terribly much in terms of help. Well, I'm glad to hear that people are receptive to it. Um, and, you know, it's great that, that you're you're managing to stay active. You mentioned um, the, the neurological issue that's developed um, uh, that, that has inhibited your ability to, to travel long distances. Uh, does it affect your, your chest play at all? Chest play is mental. So, no. Okay. Uh, again, I'm fortunate that way. Um, it only affects me when I get distracted by some of the problems. I try not to. Sometimes I am forced to take fives when I would rather play. Sometimes I have had to withdraw. But in terms of when I actually sit down on the board, hopefully I can play the game. That's my attitude. Yeah. Okay, and we've got another question from supporter of the podcast, Daniel Gell, um, who also um, related to the medical issues that, that you face. He, has, um, he he wanted to get your perspective on how chess has helped you as a person uh, playing uh, through playing with these medical issues and wanted to know if you would recommend people recommend to people who are also in wheelchairs um, for them to pursue chess and why or why not? It certainly has been my sport, as I mentioned earlier. Therefore, whatever benefits able-bodied people have from playing sports, I claim to have some of the same benefits. 
obviously sports are also physical exercise, so maybe not the exercise part. But the certainly chess keeps you mentally sharp, chess keeps you competitive. I certainly I enjoy the camaraderie of meeting with other chess players. Uh, in my case, I also have students, so... Yeah, it's give, given you a livelihood. It certainly has, both financially and also given me something very productive to do. And I am, I would say I'm fortunate that I have something like chess uh, that I can do without terribly many limitations. Obviously, there are always going to be some limitations. But I, I'm fortunate that I can play chess um, despite my uh, physical conditions. Yeah, and there was a nice write-up about you in the New York Times some years ago by uh, FM Dylan McLean. And, and he, if, if I recall correctly, mentioned in the article that despite your having a, a master's, as we mentioned, um, from Stanford, that you... you had some difficulty or I don't know what the exact wording was, but that you ended up not getting a job after getting that master's um, in the field of engineering. And then that's how you ended up um, becoming a chess coach. So um, what were your experiences like in terms of uh, looking for a job outside of chess? If, if, if you looked at all. Um, I did a little bit. Um, it's the travel component, having to live somewhere, the job is not where where I live. That's um, these days the neurological issues would make it a lot more difficult to have a regular eight to five job. Um, and I know that you do uh, you do lessons on Skype. Do you also do you also do a lot of do you travel to to give lessons as well, or are they predominantly done from from your home? They're done from my home almost exclusively. However, I do teach face-to-face at my house, at least to people in the Sacramento area. Okay. And uh, if anyone listening is looking for lessons, do you, do you have room for any more if they want to be the next uh, Daniel Naroditsky, or are you pretty much, pretty much booked these days? I am approximately booked, or roughly. I would say that I'm always looking for the right kid, so I, I would never say no. But uh, I am not openly looking for new students, that's for sure. Okay, which is uh, definitely better than the alternative, better than, than desperately looking for new students. Exactly. Okay. Okay. <laughs> All right, so, so Michael, I also got a little bit of uh, background from someone who I believe you know, Stuart Katz, um, who, who gave me a few more questions to feed you, um, if, if you don't mind. <laughs> What's that? I can only imagine what Stuart told you. <laughs> <laughs> no, he was uh, he was very complimentary of you, um, other than beating him in chess, which which we'll get to. <laughs> but uh, so one thing he asked is, um, have you become more at ease discussing your physical limitations uh, over time, and and if so, why? I would say the answer to that is probably no. I'm pretty shy about that. I, I I guess you can say I'm introverted in some ways. 
So no, I'm not the kind of guy that likes to go out and call attention to my medical conditions. Unfortunately, of course, they're quite obvious. Anybody that sees me. So, I guess maybe I'm not being wrong in that way. But that's just my nature. Okay. Well, from my perspective, I would say that I, I really appreciate your your willingness to talk about it. I mean, I know that the I mean you've you've accomplished things in the chess world that obviously ha- have nothing to do with with any physical limitations so i appreciate that you're willing to talk about it because it does it's a unique story and i'm sure like as as the person who sent in question uh sent in the first question there are there are people out there who experience similar issues and uh, i'm sure that, that you're an inspiration for them so so i just want to thank you for that um and a few more questions from from Stuart, this one we kind of touched on, but the reason that you think it's important for a chess teacher to keep playing tournaments? Yes, I I know that most chess teachers uh, don't play very much. Um, I don't know whether they have difficulty maintaining their level of competitiveness. Um, I certainly note that Grandmaster Amanov and a recent article specifically said that a uh, top coach should not play because it's difficult being both a teacher and a player. I am different in that way. I feel very strongly that a coach should at some point be a role model and therefore should play. Um, I try my best to be remain competitive. I think I have so far. Maybe there will come a point in my life when I'm no longer competitive enough, when I become a floored master, <laughs> um, and all the kids start beating me. Probably if that happens, I might end up not playing anymore. But it certainly allows me to keep a closer eye on some of my students. Occasionally, you have to play them. And uh, that's, I guess, different from many other coaches. Yeah. Um, yeah, I can see both sides, both um, as Genomenov, who you mentioned and who's been, been on the show, and um, and your own. I'm, I'm somewhere in between. I go through uh, fits and starts, basically, where I try to get back into it, but then uh, remember how much work it is. <laughs> but uh but in a perfect world I certainly agree with you um especially about um providing a role model for for your students. Um on to Stuart's next question which is uh what age you prefer to teach and why? I have taught I have a lot of experience teaching teenagers middle school, younger high school. I taught uh a high school team in the 2000s. Uh, They won six straight high school championships, California high school championships. Wow. What what uh, school was that? This was Saratoga High School. Okay. In Saratoga, California, which is in uh, Silicon Valley. uh, And most of the players back then were 1,800 to 2,000. And 
which in today's world is almost a weak team. Yeah, amazing. It's amazing how that has changed. The I have taught elementary school kids, especially recently. The uh, but still, my preference is teaching at least middle school age, and it's also my. I guess the difference is it's not just me lecturing the kid all the time. It's that they will actually interact and once in a while will say, hey, my, or you're wrong. Or why not this? And it's that interaction which I feed off. And it, of course it also helps to be a, at least a competent player. The better you are, the more likely you are to offer constructive uh, criticism, I guess. Um, but yes, I view a lesson as not just me um, telling the kid you have to do A, B, and C, but rather, okay, let's look at this game, let's look at this end game. What would you do? Okay, maybe that did not work so well. Let's try something different. And some sort of interaction back and forth. Yeah, that that's a good point. That is uh, kind of like the Socratic method. I mean, it, it's good to it's good to have um, some dialogue and not just uh, assume assume that you're the authority. Especially because I'm sure some of your students are uh, are nipping at your heels at some point because of uh, how strong kids are these days. Um, okay, another question from Stuart: Whether whether or not you wonder what level you might have been able to attain without uh, fewer with fewer physical issues. My biggest regret in chess is not at least getting the FIDE Master title after the U.S. Open in two thousand and six. My rating was twenty two ninety eight. As you, your readers, or as your listeners probably know. 2300 is FIDE Master. So you would think being 2298 is just a matter of time. Unfortunately, that was my lifetime peak. I had a bad tournament after that, and I never got anywhere close to 2300. So yeah, that's my greatest regret. But to answer Stuart's question, it may very well be that I never got serious about chess if I was not disabled. So I may never have gotten anywhere close to master. I might never know Stuart Katz. I might never have played him. I might just be your average amateur chess player doing something else. That's that's interesting. Yeah, I guess uh, it, it it cuts both ways. It both... Uh led to more interest but i don't i don't know possibly you might have lost a few rating points along the way um with with what you alluded to earlier with um some difficulties moving pieces to the back row and stuff like that and some um you're kind of spotting people time i would imagine uh definitely in blitz and probably even in tournament games perhaps not so much i'm not i don't worry about that so much being a relatively fast player myself anyways okay it is unusual for me to get into severe time pressure. Okay. 
Um, well, it's good that, that you don't have the mindset of uh, of making excuses, and that um, I mean, it seems like you've got a positive attitude about it, which uh, is good to hear. And last question. Well, he actually he left more, but I'm uh, I'm going to read one more from Stuart because he was so generous with the the background intel and the the questions that he asked that I'm just picking and choosing. But Stuart asked, "Why does he have my number over the board?" <laughs> <laughs> So be be gentle on this one, but uh, <laughs> uh, I with Stuart one of my advantages is the opening. Uh-huh. I, uh huh. I I know more. I guess theory. I'm also I teach my students how to play when your opponent does not play mainline openings. How to get an advantage. And unfortunately for Stewart, many of our games are, I feel like I have an advantage early on. Interesting. When, so, when that's not the case, I love to beat them in the end game too. <laughs> Whatever it takes. Um, Got to do what it takes. Yeah. So what advice do you give when your students, um, what advice do you give if they're playing an unfamiliar opening? How do they get an advantage? Uh, first of all, the basic opening rules. Follow them. If if they don't know the theory, try to figure out what to do with those opening rules. For example, you might know that in a certain opening you're supposed to do a certain maneuver. Okay, fine. Try to make that maneuver work. But if it doesn't, okay, try to develop a piece, develop with a threat, control the center, castle it's mind-boggling sometimes how many young players don't castle just because they don't know what the book move is right so they will do something hyper aggressive and their king gets caught in the center or they will bring their queen out too early and do something aggressive with the queen oops they hang the queen (laughs) That's a nagging problem that I'm trying to work on. Okay. So I, it's those opening rules, basic principles. If you follow those principles 100% of the time, you'll probably be okay at least 90% of the time. Even if you're not, it's no guarantee that your opponent knows what to do either. Okay. Good advice. Uh, so, Michael, I just have w- one or two more questions, if you don't mind. Go ahead. Okay. Um, so, one is, um, how closely do you follow top-level chess? You mentioned that you like to show people like Carlson and Carlson versus Roni and are you Like, for example, we're, uh, as we record, um, oh, man, I'm, this is ridiculous. I'm drawing a blank on, oh, Tata Steel is going on. Um, do you follow tournaments like that, or are you kind of... Uh, too caught up with your own chess and work. No, I, I absolutely follow anything I am find. I, I love the follow chess app on my phone. I use that and of course chess twenty four. So yes, I I'm following Tata Steel. Do you often I, watch I, uh, broadcasts or do you just prefer to, to follow the events in silence? I I rarely watch the broadcasts. Um, maybe if 
uh, Yasser or Peter Swidler are uh, doing commentary, but no, I generally do not. I watch the games, or rather I go over the games after they're finished. Okay. Being out in the West Coast with a nine-hour time difference to Central Europe, most of the games are in the morning. So I sometimes I have to catch them when they finish. But I do try, with Tata Steel, I try to go through all 14 games from every round. Wow. doesn't mean that I spend a lot of time on most of them once in a while. A particular game that interests me, maybe the opening, maybe the end game. But uh, I do make an effort to uh, look at all 14 games for every round. Uh, I've also been uh, following the big tournament in, in India right now where uh, some young kid, Ukash, is now oh, yeah. the second youngest grandmaster in history. Yeah. Um, so, yes, yeah, so I, I try to follow uh, um, top-level chess. And of, yeah. course, and, of course, tournaments in the United States, especially players that I know. Right. And do you have an opinion about this um, this debate about the world championship format? Look, I certainly think the match can be longer. I agree on that. I disagree. I'm a traditionalist when it comes to talking about rapid chess. I would rather see a 18-20 game match, but the, cha- the champion gets draw odds. In other words, to be the man, to become the man, you have to beat the man. Yeah. So in that regard, I dislike the rapid and blitz uh, tiebreaker. Uh, I would. That's there's nothing wrong with playing rapid or blitz uh, chess, you know, as a separate event. Nothing wrong with that. But I believe the world championship should be classical slow chess only. And the champion retains the title in a tie. Yeah. I'm afraid I come down on the other side on this one. I just feel like with 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 chess uh on the macro scale trending towards a draw, I just feel like that that is not a trend that's gonna reverse as computers get better and better. Um and the more draws there are, the the less sort of ROI there are for fans to sit there for eight hours to see one decisive game. I mean, I, I you know, I hate to sound like a, um, a anti-traditionalist, but the, the, that's my opinion on the matter. <laughs> um, all, but, all, we, all we need is for LeBron Iranian to become the uh, challenger. Uh, yeah, that would be... I'd be uh, happy to see him. All right, he would give Magnus calls and a bunch of unbalanced positions that inevitably somebody is going to win. We thought that Fabiano Arowana would do that, and he did. The problem is all these clearly better positions were not, nobody was able to win them. Yeah. There were three or four games where somebody should have won. Yeah, so no, it's I'm true. not quite sure that I blame the format. I blame the lack of technique by both players. 
Yeah, it's true. And uh, Peter Sfidler and Joel Benjamin, I know, both pointed out that game one could have been decisive, and that would have sent the match on like a whole different track if Magnus had just converted that game. But, I mean, if you look at like the Alpha Zero versus Stockfish versus Stockfish match and stuff like that, I mean, 75% of the games are draws, even when we talk about Alpha Zero winning that match convincingly. So, I mean, it just seems like high-level chess is just often a draw, and... If you speed up the time control, you make it more digestible for the casual fan and you lower the level. So there's going to be fewer draws. But but I understand we have a rich we have a rich tradition to uphold as well. So I know that there's two two sides to the coin, but that's just where I come down. And, um, you know, it's uh, I know that other people have different opinions and there's no there's no right answer. All right. Last question, Michael. Um, are, do you have any tournaments planned? I am going to play the Golden State Open in Concord, California in uh, three days. Oh, fun. Okay. That is definitely my uh, plan. I will almost certainly play the uh, Far West Open in Reno in April. What I do in between, I don't know. Certainly, uh, I might hit some Bay Area tournaments. Cool. Well, glad to hear that you're staying active. And, and as I mentioned, we're recording this uh, a week before it will be released. So so uh, curious listeners can take a look and hopefully you uh, acquit yourself well um, out there in Concord. Yes, thank you. Okay. And Michael, I can link to your blog. I know that you have a couple social media accounts. Do you have any preference for, for where people might might track you or reach out to you? Uh, my website is fpon.com. My blog, I update off and on. Um, that is fpon.blogspot.com. Probably my most active is uh, on Facebook and Twitter, where okay. both uh, my username is fpon. Awesome. So I will put all of those links in the show description. And, Michael, I want to thank you for for taking the time um, and, and sharing your story. It's, uh, it's, very, it's, it's really, um, really impressive what you've done, and I really appreciate your, um, your openness. Thanks for having me on. It was a pleasure. Special thanks to Matthew Passy, the esteemed producer of Perpetual Chess. I also want to thank Geert Vandervelt for supplying the intro music, and thanks to everyone who helps spread the word about the show, whether it be via social media, positive reviews on podcast platforms like Apple Podcasts, or just telling a friend about the show. Every little bit helps the show grow consistently. But most of all, I want to thank people who chip in and help support the show financially. You guys have heard me say I put a lot of time and effort into this show between researching the guests, reading the books of the guests, lining up the guests, all the promotion online. It adds up to probably about five hours a week. I love the work, but it wouldn't be possible without financial support. So... Thank you most of all to Chessable.com, and I want to give thanks to the following individuals and entities for their generous support. Ace Vallega, Adam Ralph of ChessEngland.com, Adam Vrancourge, Adrian Gutierrez, Alex Pejas, Benjamin Handelman, Bill Moran, Brett Howard Lynn, Brian Mullis, I am Carlos Perdomo of ChessAtlanta.com. Chad Hilton, Chad Oliver, Chris Balcom, Chris Flanagan, Chris Wainscott, Christopher Baumgartner, Christopher Shabri, Christopher Woods, I am Christoph Zalicki, a.k.a. Chess Explained. 
Coach J's Chess Academy, Dan O'Hanlon, Daniel Gell, Daniel Ginsberg, Daniel Lucas of U.S. Chess, Daniel Naylor, Daniel D. Schaefer, Daniel Viney, David Cramley of Chessable.com, Dwayne Edmonds, Ethan Smith, I am elect Donnie Ariel, Frank Tortoris, Gary Andrews, Gary Lewis, Geert Vandervelt, Gerard Barta, I am Greg Shahadi, Harish Srinivasan, GM Jakob Augard of Quality Chess Publishing, James Bonastia, James Millick, Jason Woolham, Jeff Anderson, Jennifer Valens of OffTheRook.com, Jeffrey Martello, John Fernandez, John Fontaine, John Hartman, John Jernigan, WGM Jen Shahadi, Jens Green, Jerry Wells, John Thompson, WGM Katarina Nemsova, Kelly Palmer, I am Kostya Kovyutsky, Krishna Gopala Krishnan, Laura Belyavsky, Lorraine Dore, Lucio Casada Silva, Matthew Passi, Martin Habish, Matthew Tedesco, my main man, Moonmaster9000, Nate Solon, Nathan Webster, GM Pascal Charbonneau, Passi Passanen, Paul Clarkson, Paul Sweeney, Paolo Santana, Peter Lux, Peter Merrifield, Randy Temple, Ricky Grijalva, Rob Lazorchek of DiplomatChess.com, Robert Steiner, Ryan Berg, Ryan Stone, Scott Darty, Scott McKinnon, Steiner Lima, the law office of Stuart Katz, in case any of y'all are in legal trouble, uh, WGM Tatia Vabrahamian, Thomas Casper, Thomas Stanix, Thomas Tachenko, Tim Brennan of TacticsTime.com, Tim Seymour, Timothy Ha, Todd Bryant, Tony Rotella, Tyron Price, Victor Vrancouge, FM Zhao Chang of Chess1000.com, and the last person in the alphabet, Zhivko Stoyanov. Thanks, everyone. I will catch you all next week. Sports Social Podcast Network. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.